This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. I uh, was watching season two of The Crown. Not a big period piece, costume drama kind of guy, but I, The Crown was a terrific series on Netflix. And the sixth episode of season two, if you're watching it, I'm not going to give anything away here, but it told the story of Queen Elizabeth's friendship with a young American religious leader and evangelist named Billy Graham. And over the years, he became a pastor and a counselor to her, as well as many other people, as well as numerous presidents and dozens of other world leaders. You know the story. He reached more people with his message than probably anyone else through his televised rallies, probably more than most popes. And amazingly, in an increasingly pluralistic society and one that's seen more than its fair share of disgraced televangelists, for sure, he managed to remain respected and pretty much unblemished in the public eye for all of his 99 years. Well, of course, this ended last week when he passed away at age 99. But the question remains from this. We are in different times now. The world has changed. The world is now different than it was when Billy Graham was getting started. Could there ever be someone like him with this kind of influence? Or has the world changed too much for that to be something we will ever see again? Dr. David Haskell is an associate professor of digital media and journalism, uh, also religion and culture. He has an expertise in Christianity and media in Canada at Wilfrid Laurier University. Uh, he joins me now. Dr. Haskell, let me be, oh, we lost Dr. Let me hang up that one. We'll try and get him again because I think I just pressed a wrong button. Let me go back to this though. We know that over the years there were, I can't remember the exact number. I saw it earlier today. Many, many, many presidents who sought out Billy Graham for counsel. This was the man who became the person when there was a crisis, when there was something else going on in the world and a president needed someone to talk to, a president needed an ear. This was the man that they reached out to. But could we ever see someone like this again? Dr. Haskell joins me now. Sorry for hanging up on you there a moment ago. Thanks for joining me. I, uh, I, occasionally when I press buttons, I, uh, you know, these things happen. Um, we are talking about this and perhaps not surprisingly to lead off with this, not surprisingly, the American atheists and the American humanists have described him as a controversial figure. Was he controversial? Well, uh, I mean, in terms of today's controversies, not at all. Uh, he was actually incredibly ecumenical for a religious leader. He was reaching out to Catholics. He, uh, he reached out early on to the civil rights movement through Martin Luther King Jr. Um, he, he made sure that his rallies were not segregated, which was ahead of the civil rights movement. He was doing that in the 1950s, where he was a bit controversial. I mean, if you had to say, where was the single controversy? It was, um, he was caught in the Oval Office on the Nixon tapes, and he was disparaging uh, Jewish media, media owners. And, um, and he later apologized for that. He, he said he had no recollection of it. Um, but uh, that was the single controversy for which he apologized, and he was warmly received by the uh, Jewish community in his apology as well. But that, I think, if you had to pick what controversy he had, that would be the, the single one. As, a, as an overall, as an overarching figure, though, in our society, it's not a word that immediately comes to mind for me, but maybe that's from the position I'm coming at this. I, I don't see most people in society looking at him as being a controversial figure. No, not at all. I mean, he did so much to make sure that he wasn't 
a controversial figure, uh, including um, he he had a team um, on his uh, on his uh, for financial accountability with the Billy Graham Ministries. So he made sure that happened in terms of the the ministry itself. When he went out or if he sent out other people as part of a team, um, people never got to stay in a hotel room alone. There was always someone with them. So he was really trying to make them both morally accountable in terms of their sexual ethic. He was trying to make them financially accountable. And uh, and he r- led the way in terms of that kind of accountability. Now, many televangelists did not follow his example, but uh, but he did try to set a good example. But it sounds very quaint by today's standards. I mean, it, we, the vice president of the United States said, I'm not going to go and have lunch with a female staffer, so there's no possibility of running into a problem. And he was kind of shredded for that. I mean, this is a very, by today's standards, a very quaint notion. Yeah, it's a quaint notion, but man, when you look at the Me Too movement, you'd think that maybe it's effective. When, when, you, when you see what uh, is happening right now with people like Harvey Weinstein, um, who definitely doesn't follow the rule of having an accountability partner who's male in his hotel room. You wonder if you have to celebrate these people as opposed to uh, deride them for doing something that is odd. Uh, if you are trying to be true to your moral compass, even if we think it's a little bit parochial or, or outdated, at least the intent seems to be noble. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Continuing our conversation with David Haskell, a associate professor of digital media and journalism, religion and culture at Wilfrid Laurier University. We're chatting about the possibility. Billy Graham's funeral is coming up on Friday. Uh, passed away last week, obviously, and whether someone like him could ever come along again. And, and David, I'm not even sure we're talking from a religious perspective, though that certainly is a massive, the overarching thing here. But there's a lot of other pieces to this as well. He was an advisor to so many presidents, and I got to think that with social media and the way things work today, if he were, if someone were to come along and become an advisor, even a religious, spiritual, whatever you want to call it, advisor to a president. That would, in our world right now, with the heat of political discourse and everything, essentially eliminate him from consideration to be the advisor to another president on the other side of the political spectrum. That would just seem to be the way things are going. I don't see how you could have someone do what he did again. No, you're absolutely right on that, Scott. Uh, We've got severe political um, polarization. And the way that I sometimes think about it is uh, in terms of the television universe, you know, uh, back in the 1950s, when Billy Graham was in his ascendancy, you, you had maybe three channels, right? And and so the choices weren't there. There was a real monoculture. Popular culture was a monoculture. And even Christianity at that time was part of that monoculture. But now we've got such a diversity in our society that uh, we can't agree on what television show is good. We can't agree on what music is good. People are split just across the spectrum. So to think that we'd have a, a figure, a religious figure, who'd be able to bridge those gaps is is just as unthinkable, given that we're so polarized in every other area. Well, right. And we have and the debate about religion of any kind in the public square, whether it's Islamophobia or whether it's taking down statues of the Ten Commandments in the States or whatever else, uh, to have an unabashedly Christian preacher who was serving as the 
again, as the advisor, probably a lot of politicians now would be, for political correct reasons, would be very, I would think, hesitant to do that. Well, for sure. And you might be able to get away with it a little bit more in the U.S., where there still is a contingent of people who, I mean, about 70% would still claim Christianity, whether it's Catholic or Protestant Christianity. But here in Canada, we've now fallen below the halfway mark, only 48% of Canadians identify as Christian. So when you don't have a majority of your population thinking in one religious direction, for sure you're not going to find somebody who is representing the the, the monoculture the mono there. And again, even in the United States, um, the, the other side that is maybe more uh, secularist, it is so vocal now, it, it certainly would object to any, any kind of religious ties between the president and, and somebody that were too tight. And yet he somehow, and this is the interesting thing, I think, or one of the most interesting things about his legacy is I know he was older and I know he was getting up there already, but you look back at 9-11 after the planes hit the towers and when they had the national service of mourning, I can't remember the exact name for it, at the National Cathedral, it wasn't a Muslim, it wasn't a Buddhist, it wasn't a Jew, it was it was Billy Graham who was brought in, and I don't remember at that time ever hearing anyone have an issue with that. It was just sort of accepted that that was the guy who was going to be giving this sermon. Well, I think that he he had enough in the way of making bridges with other religious communities that that he was still the go-to guy. And at the time, you've got a Protestant president who was the sitting president, right? So, so it makes sense in that way. In the United States, they don't mind a closer relationship between religious figures, even though it's funny because, right, in the United States, they actually do have a separation between church and state, which we don't have in Canada, but we live it here, whereas they don't live it there. So there's an irony in that. But he, again, he was a safe choice because he tended to make bridges. So I think that that's, uh, that was acceptable. And it was also acceptable because he was uh, a Protestant and the president at the time was a Protestant. I think that people thought, okay, he's okay to go to, given that that was the pension of the sitting president as well. Now, if if he has a legacy that people remember, now uh, certainly Christians and, and evangelical Christians will remember Billy Graham for many, many years, but among the broader public, will his legacy in time be perceived as positive, or will it be pulled down a bit because of the divisions we have and because of the angry exchanges that religion in the public square often seems to elicit now. Will will he be seen 10 or 20 years from now as being a positive force in the U.S.? Or will there be more tweets like I started with where he was a controversial figure? How do you see this playing out? Uh, well, I think that um, if I were a betting man, I would say that he will be seen more as a controversial figure. And not because anything that not people aren't going to discover new things that he's done, but increasingly as uh, North America slips into more of uh, a more secular mindset, they're going to find e- even the fact that he was religious is going to be something that is going to make people angry. So that that will count against him, even though people would say, well, there was freedom of religion or there is freedom of religion, but that will count against him as there's a movement towards secularism. And, and that's a sociological concept there. We talk about the gener- uh, a loss of generational momentum. So as soon as any kind of social movement, and a religion can be a social movement, when it loses generational momentum, it's seen by other people in the future as something that is, is 
fairly negative, or they look for the negative in it. It's a fascinating thing. The funeral is on Friday. Of course, he's uh, been uh, lying in state, was lying in state at the rotunda at the Capitol. Only four private citizens ever that has been done for. The last one was Rosa Parks, and now uh, Billy Graham is the most recent. David Haskell from the University of Wilfrid Laurier. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. No trouble. Thanks for having me. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. I walk the line. Scott Radley Show, 900 CHML. Little Johnny Cash on his birthday today. Would have been 86 years old today, Johnny Cash. That's why we're playing his music all night. Uh, he probably should have had a different version of that for tomorrow. Something about I look after the bottom line. Doesn't quite fit in. You know what I'm getting at. Anyway, tomorrow is the federal budget is what I'm getting to in the most convoluted way possible. And that means two things. One... The finance minister has new shoes. And two, you will probably end up paying more somehow, some way, because that's what happens. Budgets generally do not give us more money. They try. They say they're going to. But oftentimes, oftentimes it means more taxes one way or another. But let us find out whether that will be what is waiting for us tomorrow. Uh, Marvin Ryder, our friend from the DeGroote School of Business, always glad to have him on, sir. Thanks for doing this today. My pleasure. Um, now, I do expect that we will hear right off the bat that there will be a significant increase in the budget for the Prime Minister's costume fund. But beyond that, what are we expecting from the budget tomorrow? So I hate to tell you this. Uh, it's a Tuesday afternoon budget about 4.30 p.m., and it is going to be boring as all get out. <laughs> now, why is it boring? Well, this is not the pre-election budget. Next year, 2019, is when the Liberal government is going to be facing re-election. So you, if you want to give out some goodies, you don't give them out now. You give them out next year. This budget is really going to be a hold-the-line budget, kind of like walk-the-line, hold-the-line budget here. And what do I mean by that? First thing they're going to tell you, and this will be the headline, uh, budget deficit lower than projected. In the fall, they did an economic update. They originally said in this fiscal year they were going to have over a $28 billion deficit. And last October, they said it's only $19.9 billion. But I don't think that's going to be the number either. I think they're going to announce that for the year that's coming to an end, the fiscal year coming to an end, the deficit's probably more like, oh, say, $16 billion. And they'll say, you see, you see, this is our good fiscal management. And then when they project the next year, they'll say, well, you know, we're not necessarily going to do any better. We're, we're still probably going to have a $16 billion deficit. But if you read closely, you'll see they'll probably have a contingency fund of 3 to $4 billion. That's prudent budgeting, given that we don't know what's going to happen with NAFTA, and we don't know what Mr. Trump's going to do south of the border to have a contingency. But what that allows you to do is really come back and say, I only have a $12 billion deficit, but I put $4 billion in to fool around. That then also sets them up next year to come down with a budget deficit of just a single number of billions, like $7 billion, $8 billion. And from a point where it looked like they were never going to balance the budget, they're going to look a lot better in hindsight. So that's the big headline. Otherwise, I don't expect to see any significant spending. Oh, they'll throw some little things out there. There's going to be some paternity leave. Um, men will be able to get a five-week paternity leave, trying to get women back in the workforce faster. There's going to be some things around Aboriginal health, uh, clean water on First Nations uh, uh, areas across the country, and better schools, that sort of thing. 
maybe maybe a little something around investment. Uh, you know, put investment in will give you a little something. No new spending of any kind. No new taxes of any kind. And thus, it's going to be probably about a half an hour of a lot of reannouncing what we've already told you and slapping our back and then reminding everybody this is the year we legalize marijuana. Yeah. And that's going to cost some money, they keep saying. But let me go back to one of the things, because you sort of mentioned it quickly, but they have made, we are expecting that one of the things they're going to make great attention to or pay great attention to tomorrow is the gender equity budget. This is going to be about putting more women in the workforce and and pay equity and bringing their pay up to what the men are making. But what what does that mean? How do we do that and not have it cost us money? Mm-hmm. Now, even though the concept, I mean, even though the idea may be something we support, it sounds like it's going to cost us. Yes. Well, uh, this is one of the great tricks that federal governments do, and this isn't unique to, to Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister Trudeau. Prime Minister Harper did this before. What you call upon is the private sector to do the right thing, but you don't actually pass any legislation to do it. So you, you lay out a vision of the world, in this case, that men and women are working for equal pay for work of equal value, uh, and talk about how uh, internally you're taking steps to make that happen and how you're going to encourage the business community and you'll, you'll go on a listening tour and you'll have a royal commission and you'll do these other things. But they're not, they're not actually going to have any legislation to make any of this happen. What they're simply hoping to do is that by making sure they've got all these child care spaces, by giving an encouragement to men to take paternity leave, and by the way, just on that front, in Quebec, which already has this program, 80% of men take the five-week paternity leave. In the rest of the country, only 25% of new fathers take paternity leave. They argue that if more men did this, more equal burden of child-rearing, etc., we'd be better off. So they're going to paint a, a picture, a vision, but it's not a vision that costs them anything. It might cost individual employers something, but they're going to leave that to the employers to sort out on their own. So the government has absolute pay equity as it stands right now? Oh, they, they would not tell you that. You might remember they have that wonderful thing called the Phoenix system, which isn't even able to pay their employees <laughs> as it stands. But they're going to talk about the steps they're taking and that they're going to be a role model to others and, and so on and so forth. Again, high on rhetoric, short on action. The very simple, there's a very simple answer to this, and a lot of people wouldn't like it. But we can't necessarily, I think they said there's 1.6 million federal employees uh, across the country, and so we assume half of those are women. That would be a huge hit to the tax burden if they suddenly got pay equity, though as, hey, that may be a good idea. They've made the mess. Why not reduce the male employees down to the women? Everyone's equal then, and then the private sector doesn't have to pay as much tax. Yeah, God bless you for that. So <laughs> the, the, the problem, I, the minute I start reducing people's pay, that's called constructive dismissal in the words of, uh, of your labor law consultants, and that you can always move people up to get equity, but you can never move people down. Otherwise, you are constructively dismissing them, and now I have to pay severances. Now, look, I don't, I don't think the problem is that big within the federal government. Like so many things, uh, provincial governments, federal governments, the, the school systems, the university systems, many of them have been taking significant steps to reach pay equity. You may or may not remember a story about three years ago that McMaster just universally raised the yes. salaries of their female professors to create more equity between them. It wasn't because of any lawsuit or anything else. So I, think, I don't think this is going to cost nearly what you think it does on the federal side, but what they're going to say is, look, we're this role model. We're now going to encourage the private sector to follow us. And it makes for a nice talking point. This is a government that views itself as a feminist or pro-feminist Absolutely, government. absolutely. But I don't think it's going to cost you and I very much. 
You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. I walk the line. Scott Radley Show, 900 CHML. Little Johnny Cash on his birthday today. Would have been 86 years old today, Johnny Cash. That's why we're playing his music all night. Uh, he probably should have had a different version of that for tomorrow. Something about I look after the bottom line. Doesn't quite fit in. You know what I'm getting at. Anyway, tomorrow is the federal budget is what I'm getting to in the most convoluted way possible. And that means two things. One, the finance minister has new shoes. And two, you will probably end up paying more somehow, some way, because that's what happens. Budgets generally do not give us more money. They try. They say they're going to, but oftentimes, oftentimes it means more taxes one way or another. But let us find out whether that will be what is waiting for us tomorrow. Uh, Marvin Ryder, our friend from the DeGroote School of Business, always glad to have him on, sir. Thanks for doing this today. My pleasure. Um, Now, I do expect that we will hear right off the bat that there will be a significant increase in the budget for the Prime Minister's costume fund. But beyond that, what are we expecting from the budget tomorrow? So I hate to tell you this, uh, it's a Tuesday afternoon budget about 4.30 p.m., and it is going to be boring as all get out. <laughs> now, why is it boring? Well, uh, this is not the pre-election budget. Next year, 2019, is when the Liberal government is going to be facing re-election. So you, if you want to give out some goodies, you don't give them out now, you give them out next year. This budget is really going to be a hold-the-line budget, kind of like walk-the-line, hold-the-line budget here. And what do I mean by that? First thing they're going to tell you, and this will be the headline, uh, budget deficit lower than projected. In the fall, they did an economic update. They originally said in this fiscal year they were going to have over a $28 billion deficit. And last October, they said it's only $19.9 billion. But I don't think that's going to be the number either. I think they're going to announce that for the year that's coming to an end, the fiscal year coming to an end, the deficit's probably more like, oh, say, $16 billion dollars. And they'll say, you see, you see, this is our good fiscal management. And then when they project the next year, they'll say, well, you know, we're not necessarily going to do any better. We're, we're still probably going to have a $16 billion deficit. But if you read closely, you'll see they'll probably have a contingency fund of 3 to $4 billion. That's prudent budgeting, given that we don't know what's going to happen with NAFTA, and we don't know what Mr. Trump's going to do south of the border to have a contingency. But what that allows you to do is really come back and say, I only have a $12 billion deficit, but I put $4 billion in to fool around. That then also sets them up next year to come down with a budget deficit of just a single number of billions, like $7 billion, $8 billion. And from a point where it looked like they were never going to balance the budget, they're going to look a lot better in hindsight. So that's the big headline. Otherwise, I don't expect to see any significant spending. Oh, they'll throw some little things out there. There's going to be some paternity leave. Um, Men will be able to get a five-week paternity leave trying to get women back in the workforce faster. There's going to be some things around Aboriginal health, uh, clean water on First Nations uh, uh, areas across the country, and better schools, that sort of thing. Uh, maybe maybe a little something around investment, uh, you know, put investment in, will give you a little something. No new spending of any kind, no new taxes of any kind, and thus it's going to be probably about a half an hour of a lot of reannouncing what we've already told you and slapping our back and then reminding everybody this is the year we legalize marijuana. Yeah, 
And that's going to cost some money, they keep saying. But let me go back to one of the things, because you sort of mentioned it quickly, but they have made, we are expecting that one of the things they're going to make great attention to or pay great attention to tomorrow is the gender equity budget. This is going to be about putting more women in the workforce and, and pay equity and bringing their pay up to what the men are making. But what, exa- what does that mean? How do we do that and not have it cost us money? Mm-hmm. Now, even though the concept, I mean, even though the idea may be something we support, it sounds like it's going to cost us. Yes. Well, uh, this is one of the great tricks that federal governments do, and this isn't unique to, to Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister Trudeau. Prime Minister Harper did this before. What you call upon is the private sector to do the right thing, but you don't actually pass any legislation to do it. So you, you lay out a vision of the world, in this case, that men and women are working for equal pay for work of equal value, uh, and talk about how uh, internally you're taking steps to make that happen and how you're going to encourage the business community and you'll, you'll go on a listening tour and you'll have a royal commission and you'll do these other things. But they're not, they're not actually going to have any legislation to make any of this happen. What they're simply hoping to do is that by making sure they've got all these childcare spaces, by giving an encouragement to men to take paternity leave, and by the way, just on that front, in Quebec, which already has this program, 80% of men take the five-week paternity leave. In the rest of the country, only 25% of new fathers take paternity leave. They argue that if more men did this, more equal burden of child-rearing, etc., we'd be better off. So they're going to paint a, a picture, a vision, but it's not a vision that costs them anything. It might cost individual employers something, but they're going to leave that to the employers to sort out on their own. So the government has absolute pay equity as it stands right now? Oh, they, they would not tell you that. You might remember they have that wonderful thing called the Phoenix system, which isn't even able to pay their employees <laughs> as it stands. But they're going to talk about the steps they're taking and that they're going to be a role model to others and, and so on and so forth. Again, high on rhetoric, short on action. The very simple, there's a very simple answer to this, and a lot of people wouldn't like it. But we can't necessarily, I think they said there's 1.6 million federal employees uh, across the country, and so we assume half of those are women. That would be a huge hit to the tax burden if they suddenly got pay equity, though as, hey, that may be a good idea. They've made the mess. Why not reduce the male employees down to the women? Everyone's equal then, and then the private sector doesn't have to pay as much tax. Yeah, God bless you for that. So <laughs> the, the, the problem, I, the minute I start reducing people's pay, that's called constructive dismissal in the words of, uh, of your labor law consultants, and that you can always move people up to get equity, but you can never move people down. Otherwise, you are constructively dismissing them, and now I have to pay severances. Now, look, I don't, I don't think the problem is that big within the federal government. Like so many things, uh, provincial governments, federal governments, the, the school systems, the university systems, many of them have been taking significant steps to reach pay equity. You may or may not remember a story about three years ago that McMaster just universally raised the yes. salaries of their female professors to create more equity between them. It wasn't because of any lawsuit or anything else. So I, think, I don't think this is going to cost nearly what you think it does on the federal side, but what they're going to say is, look, we're this role model. We're now going to encourage the private sector to follow us. And it makes for a nice talking point. This is a government that views itself as a feminist or pro-feminist. Absolutely, government. absolutely. But I don't think it's going to cost you and I very much. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML chatting with Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business about tomorrow's budget. And Marvin, right off the top, you mentioned about what is going on, the uncertainty south of the border. Um, What does that, when you have uncertainty, what does that mean the government would or should or will or 
could do? What, what would be the proper plan to take when you don't really know what you're facing down the road? Mm-hmm. So uh, there's uncertainty, and then there's uncertainty. Yes, there's always uncertainty. There's Just always uncertainty, but you, you pretty much know what the major players are going to do, and you anticipate that. In other words, what a budget is is a financial forecast in which you anticipate what the future is going to look like, and you plan accordingly. Uh, up till oh, 18 months or so ago uh, with uh, previous administrations, we, we could predict pretty accurately what was going to go on with the United States and then take action accordingly. <clears throat> what Mr. Trump does is he, he, he swings around, he vacillates, he moves around. It's kind of hard to pin him down on where he's going to go. So first thing I think you're going to see tomorrow is no specific mention about tax cuts. There were a lot of people wondering if, if uh, Minister Morneau would, because Donald Trump had instituted tax cuts south of the border and could give Canada that continued a little bit of an advantage, he would instantly administer tax cuts. And his answer was no. I don't think he's going to do it. I think he might talk about helping you uh, better write off any investments you make um, because he just doesn't quite know what that means in south of the border. Donald Trump is taking a big gamble that these tax cuts are going to stimulate the economy. If they don't stimulate the economy, it's actually going to drive the American deficit up another $1.4 trillion. Uh, that's not good. And so to, you know, to follow the, the lead of the United States in the best race to zero, if you will, for taxes, that's not the best strategy. Encouraging investment is good. So he may have something like that, and he may put it into some of those what they call super clusters or targeted clusters that way. But the other thing he's simply got to do is tell me whether NAFTA is going to survive or not. We're into a start of a 10-day negotiation in Mexico City that began today, ends March 5th. That's round seven. Round eight happens at the end of the month, and there are no rounds scheduled after that. Every outcome is possible from NAFTA gets ripped up and torn and shredded through to we get a new deal. If we have a new deal, the turbulence in the water drops dramatically, and we don't need to worry quite so much. But if it gets torn up, my gosh, you know, it's a brand new world. And so this is why I'm saying their budget's probably going to have a big contingency fund just to give them some wiggle room in case they need to throw some stimulus or do something with the economy at that point. But until they know the future of NAFTA, they've got to keep their powder dry. Well, and with Trump doing the uh, cuts to the corporate tax and the uh, the moves that would allow repatriation of offshore money to come back and invest in businesses and all those kind of things, would it not put some pressure on the Liberals not to increase any kind of corporate taxes or do too much that's going to hit the corporate world? Certainly not to increase them, but the question was, would we decrease them? Now, the thing that people forget is that in the Trump tax cuts, they're phased in over a five-year period. So right now, we are still looking pretty favorable compared to the United States for today and the year after that and the year after that. The Liberals do have the luxury of time to move if they wanted to reduce the marginal tax rates. That's why I think the more important thing was the side of investment. If Trump is allowing people to write off investments more quickly or give them some advantage when they repatriate their funds, we may want to try to do something like that. So I would not be surprised to see something on the investment side. Certainly no new taxes. So I think you and I as citizens at large, I'm not expecting the marginal tax rates to go up. And in fact, traditionally, they always raise the lowest tax rate where people don't have to pay taxes to keep the poorest from having to pay. You're going to hear about all that kind of rhetoric. But otherwise, there's just nothing really on the tax front that's going to happen tomorrow. There is, uh, and again, you talked about the deficit. Uh, there's no indication that they are going to be talking about a balanced budget tomorrow. No. In fact, I think we would all fall out of our chairs if they presented one like that. Yes. Um, this is not, and we've talked about this before on the show, that having a debt, having a deficit is not an issue now. 
at, with all the uncertainty, at what point would it become one or could it become one? It's the size of the deficit that always worries you in relationship to your economy, uh, both the size of a deficit in any one year and then the accumulated debt, what's the size of it. What the, and I know no one wants to give Justin any credit for this or the liberals any credit for this, but his incremental increase in the debt actually is, is still happening as we reduce our debt load. So as a percentage of our GDP, our debt is actually going down even though they're taking on new debt. Because as bad as it sounds to take on $18 billion in new debt, we actually had the capability to take on more. So by taking on less, we're still as a fraction of our, of our overall um, GDP seeing our debt load reduced. I, but again, I don't think anyone wants to see this happen for long term. Long term, there's going to be a recession, whether that's next year or four years or eight years, who knows. In the good economic times, you want to balance your books. That's happening naturally, and I know, again, Everyone gave Justin great, great uh, 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 you know, arguments about the budget will balance itself, but it actually is thanks to growth in the economy. The Canadian economy this year could grow as much as two and a half, three percent. If we had another year like that, a sixteen billion dollar projected deficit could easily become an eight billion dollar deficit, and the year after that, it could be gone. He's not promising that because again, there's too much uncertainty. But it's one of these self-correcting things that he can take credit for as they head to an election next fall. We have 20 seconds. Is there anything that would cause you, other than a balanced budget, to fall out of your chair tomorrow that you would be completely blown away by if they were to bring this up? Just any significant new spending, anything that you could measure in billions of dollars in a, in a year. If they do it over five or ten years, those are really marginal dollars. Uh, but I'm not expecting anything else. Uh, but I am expecting a lot of trumpeting again. We said this a moment ago. This is the year we legalize marijuana, ladies and gentlemen, and that will give masses of, of cheers out in the crowds at large. And we'll all feel very mellow and Absolutely. very happy. But, well, who though, cares about a deficit at that point? <laughs> We're all just so stoned. Who cares about Pat the economy? Tomatoes. Come on. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. Always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Anytime. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Let me start with this. Women's Olympic hockey. I was obviously away, but I taped it and watched it when I got home. I watched the game last night. Can we finally make a vow that no Canadian team will ever enter another international event that has a shootout that determines the winner? Canada has enough clout that they could say, we will not send a Canadian team to any more international events if you have the shootout. Period. That's my argument. That's my answer for that. Well, the uh, the Olympics didn't cancel the men's hockey because the NHL players weren't coming, so I don't imagine they're going to change their format. I would think, see, shootouts are only, in a, you know, everybody's on the bandwagon about shootouts suck and it's an awful way to determine a winner. They only suck when you don't win. But we never win. Well, then we better get better at it. Um, but it is a horrible way. It's, it, not, it's not hockey. It's not hockey. No, it's a... It's, it's a it's a dreadful way to determine who the best team is because you turn it into an individual competition. You don't need to take the team aspect out of it, right? But, um, I mean, it wasn't that long ago they used to switch ends in the middle of the uh, third period as a tradition, uh, and it started because of the win factor when the games were played outside. So if you think it takes that long, I mean, they, they, made, they went on with that tradition long after the game's started being played indoors. So but this if you is going to move like a snail. But if you don't have another game, if it's the championship game, there's no game for you tomorrow. I, I mean, I understand if it's the round robin or even if it's the quarterfinals and you have to play the semifinal, although they seem to do it fine in the NHL. But if you have to play the semifinal the next day 
and it goes six overtime periods. I understand how that's a clear disadvantage to the team that wins and has to play the fresh team the next day. So you can't do that. But if it's the championship, you got nowhere to go. It's the last game. And for especially for women's hockey, it's the only game that matters for four years. I mean, really, is I don't. I'm not. This is not a. I'm not diminishing the women's game in any way, shape, or form. It was a fantastic tournament. And it was a terrific game. But if you ask the women on the either team, what game means the most? What is the one game you have to win every four years? They will point to the Olympic gold medal game. More than the World Championship Finals, more than the Four Nations Cup. This is the one game that matters every year. How can you not say play it till it finishes? If it goes 27 overtimes, play it till it finishes. The problem is you only want to change one game. You only want to play the championship. Yeah, I would say play the championship. You you only want to change the championship game that you play to uh, to a winner. Because I, because I'm because there's nothing after it. I get because that. I'm reasonable enough to say I'd like to have it for every game. So what happens? What happens if Canada, the night before, went into four overtime periods and had to play? But that's what I'm saying. I'm pragmatic enough to say because of the way the thing is set up, you can't do it for the earlier games. You can't. I'd love it to be, but you can't. No, but 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 if if you think about the semifinal games, and for example, Canada had to play four overtime periods to. Um, get there, You're, uh, uh, right? Or, or do you want to use the shootout? No, there? I'm saying I'm saying I would love to go for overtime until it ends, but I'm realistic enough to say you can't do that. You have to have the shootout. So how up does to it? That. How does it get a whole lot better if uh, uh, Russia beats Canada in a shootout in semifinals? It doesn't, except that it's as I say. I, I I understand at least why you have to have the shootout in that one. I don't like it. I hate it. But at least I understand why you need it then. I can't fathom why you need it in the championship game when there's nothing afterwards. There's no, there's no other game after. You could play till you drop and someone will eventually score, but at least it'll be a goal in a game. So if you, if you want to make it so that there's four days like soccer where there's four days between each game, I'd love to have it so that you have settle it on the ice in a game each time, but with the compressed schedule of the Olympics, you can't do that. So, I, so it's, it's just so rea- it's acceptable for a shootout in the semis, but not the. Final. It's not acceptable, but it's the only thing you can do. It's not. It's not a good way to end a game ever. I think they've determined that's the format they're going with. They're going with it the entire tournament. Well, obviously they have. It's just a crappy way. I, I'm I'm looking today at a bunch of tweets that the American women's national team is now on a nationwide celebration tour. Well, with their, won, with their gold medals. They, they still won. haven't won the game. They, I mean, they won the shootout, but they never won the game. No, but they have the gold medal. They have the gold medal. They do. And they haven't had it in 20 years. Nope. They're pretty happy. No, and uh, so that's why I said once upon a time, I, we were joking before, I said, well, you know, you got to act like you've been there. Oh, wait, you never have. Um, but they didn't win the game. They got the gold medal, but they didn't win the game. And I would, and, and if anyone would you, thinks... Would you feel that way? I was just going to say, I would Laura feel, Fortino to put one in the top shelf... Um, a shootout is... I, I hated it when Jonathan Taves won the World Juniors and Carey Price was in net and Jonathan Taves scored three times in a row against the Americans. Play the game. Basketball would never... And people always use this example, and I agree with it. Basketball never says, you know what, we've gone to three overtimes now, our guys are exhausted, it's now a free throw shooting competition or a three-point competition or a slam dunk contest. We would never do that. We would never say to do that. Baseball, you don't say, 
oh, we're into the 16th inning, so what are we going to do? Well, load the bases and we'll start the inning that way and maybe someone will get in. Some, some levels of baseball put a guy on second base to start the inning. I disagree with that. Play the game. Play the game. I hate, I, as I say, and it's not just this women's hockey thing. It's the latest one. I hated when the World Cup of Soccer, when it was Italy and Brazil, was it Italy and Brazil when Roberto Baggio shot over the net to lose the World Cup championship game? Yeah, I don't know who it was, but. I play, the, it's the last game. It's a championship game. You've got nowhere to go after this. Play the game till someone wins. And if you have to, even though, again, I, I'm not a fan of this, if you have to, by the time you get to the third overtime, take a player off the ice so it's four on four, just to expedite things. It's still better than a shooter. If you do that with soccer, it could end up be like cricket. But with soccer, you could, you could say we're going to take a player off now every 10 minutes. It still would be the game. It would be a slightly different well, version of the game. It but becomes gimmicky. If you end up down to three on three. It's yeah, pretty- I, you wouldn't though. In soccer, you would end up with something happening probably by the time you got to nine on nine because Boy, it's so much, op- so much open space at that point. I'm not sp- a soccer guy, but you're going you're gonna to get the traditionalists out there with their toenails curling But up. it's still better. Seattle won the MLS Cup. Without a shot on net. Didn't have a shot on net last Because year. they had shootouts. Because they had penalties. But it's long- not a way to decide a game. But Let how- them play. But how long would the game have gone on? Well, There's no evidence Seattle was ever going to get a shot on that. No, and so eventually, but and again, so there. If it comes to it, and you say, "Look, we for for health and safety reasons, we can't have these guys running for nine hours." So I say, after your first full half hour overtime, a guy comes off, and then every ten minutes of playing time, we'll take a guy off within a couple. Yeah, that'll make it a lot better for the guys that are left. They got to cover twice the field. But that will open something up, and at least you'll have a goal in something resembling the sport that you were playing. I don't find that any more pure than. So mean, it's to me. To me, it at least resembles the game. It's like a power. It play might be out. better. You can't. I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do that. I mean, you prefer a shootout? No, I don't like shootouts. But I, you start taking guys off, and you change the meaning of the game. Are you sure the best team wins then? More than if it's a shootout, it's still not, it's so not it's, ideal. It's not ideal. There's no, it's not so ideal. So it's more better. It's more better. <laughs> the NHL look. The, the NHL has the right system. You play it till someone ends the game. Yep, that's the way it should be. As I say, I'll use the word again. I'm pragmatic enough to understand there are circumstances where that is not feasible. So you just can't do that. Although. The NHL plays every second day in the playoffs, and sometimes it's gone to three overtimes and they have to play two days later. So it's, you know, if they can do it, why can others not do it? However, I would, I would love for some Canadian fans to raise some money and take out ads in American newspapers where this celebration trip is going, pointing out they still haven't actually won the game. They got the gold medal. They won the shootout. They never won the game. It's a, it's a, what do they call it? It's a Pyrrhic victory. Hollow. It's I, a hollow victory for the I don't think the they're Americans. looking at it like that. I don't well, they're know. not. No. They're not. They're on Ellen, I think, tomorrow or the next day. And you better believe they're going to be, uh, they're going to be celebrating like they just won a gold medal. But it's a hollow, hollow, hollow victory, those Americans. We don't believe it. We don't buy it. They still haven't won the game. Bring them back. Bring them back and let's relight the flame and finish it properly. That's how it should be done.
You got sunstroke. <laughs> on an airplane too long. But, yeah, that the disease that Sergeant Snothead <laughs> gave me is beginning to fill it. I, I just I hate the shootout, and I always have hated the shootout because it's just not got anything to do with the game. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show weeknights from six to eight only on 900 CHML. Uh, Don, interesting thing from the Olympics when Russia beat Germany for the hockey gold medal which will probably never utter those words ever again anywhere. Pavel Datsuk, who won how many Stanley Cups? Three, four with the Detroit Red Wings, something like that. Won a lot of them. Said this gold medal meant more to him than any of the Stanley Cups that he won. And I was somewhat slash very surprised by that. Because I could have I could have understood him saying that if this had been Russia winning when all the NHL guys were there and you were the best in the world, you were unquestionably the best team now in the world. But this is Pavel Datsuk playing a bunch of guys who, no disrespect, but should have been playing in the Ontario Senior A Hockey League at this point. And that's not to take anything away from your league, but this is not the top, top, top players at their prime in the NHL. I'm just really shocked that he would have taken this much meaning out of this kind of a tournament. Maybe winning a gold medal for his country just meant that much to him. Like it, you can't blame him. That's all there was to play against. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll, and, and of course he wants to win the gold medal. Right? I get that. But, but the point is, that's the way it was set up this year, and, and it was his shot at winning a gold medal. I would venture a guess that if you ask Sidney Crosby, under a different format, whether the Stanley Cups or the gold medal means more to him. I bet he says gold medal. No, your argument back could easily be, yeah, but he, he beat all the best players That clearly, in, yeah, in that distinguished, that, or that determined that he was on the best team in the world. Yes. I would argue that Russia's team at the Olympics would not beat one single NHL team Right now, the last place team in the NHL would beat the Russian Olympic team as it stands at this moment. Okay, so if, if no, this is, you started it. <laughs> if the U.S. were short their best defenseman and their top forward and the women had won the gold medal, would it be any less significant? Knowing no, full no, well no. they didn't beat their best team. It's the only scenario I can... Well, okay, but and I, I understand what you're saying now. So if, you, if you're if you missing a star player and... Or if, two. Or two. At, although the, that is... Is it any less significant or any less meaningful to the women that won the gold medal? I suggest it's not. Probably not, but that's that's a part of sport, though, where you would say, well, you know, injuries would happen in that thing. Like if Sidney Crosby hadn't played for Pittsburgh and they lost, would you say it's a less of a meaningful victory because Sidney Crosby wasn't on the ice? And I would say no. See, all he can do is play against the and play in the format that was available for him to play in. Fair enough. It and doesn't take the goal, in his mind clearly, it doesn't make it any less significant to him to win it that way than any other way. Of course he wants to win the gold medal, and of course he's happy that he won the gold medal, and of course he would say this is a highlight of my life. I'm just surprised that a guy who's played against the best for so many years would say this is the single most important thing in my life. I have no dreams left, was his quote. I've now fulfilled every dream. This was my dream. All right, so Derek Roy played for Team Canada. His brother plays for the Dundas Real McCoys. 
I would assuredly, if we had a chance to have a cup of tea with Derek Roy, if he'd have come back and had his gold medal and we honored him in a game, he would not think it was insignificant that he won a gold medal for hockey for Canada. No. At the Olympics. Did Derek Roy win a Stanley Cup? I don't know. No. Well, he didn't. He played in Buffalo. No. So he didn't win a, So he didn't have that to compare it to. And I and I, so I grant you. And when you had when you had Jay McKee playing for the Dundas Real McCoys in the Allen Cup, who had not won a Stanley, who wanted to win a championship, or a championship. Jason Ward, who wanted to win a championship. Yep. Though I completely understand why you want to win a championship, but you're saying that's had won Stanley Cups. Well, you know what that may tell you is that he was playing in North America for the money and not the Stanley Cup. And that yes, and that tells me that tells me a lot actually about probably a lot of the players who are over from Europe. And that's not a Europe bashing thing. It's a, it's a, this is your, this is your gold standard, pardon the pun, but this is your gold standard. The Stanley Cup is just something you win along the way if you do. Matt Sundin lives in Sweden. Yeah. He made probably a hundred million dollars playing hockey in a national hockey league and loved every minute of playing for Toronto and moved home as soon as he could. They're entitled to go back and do what they want. And Datsuk and, and those guys are probably saying, this is great. Now I can win a gold medal. That will cap my career off. The NHL guys aren't coming. I couldn't play if they were, and now I can win a gold medal. I think he's entitled to say but see, that. I think Datsuk, of all the people on Russia, Datsuk would have been on the Russian team still. He may have, yeah. He still is at a, a level that he could still, and that, again, that to me is kind of like Don would be saying, you know what, Hamilton doesn't have a men's, uh, what sport do you want to change? If you're a tennis player. A golf, you're a golfer, all right, and your golf club doesn't have a senior men's tournament for a club championship for whatever reason, but yep. they have a junior championship of kids who are up to 16 years old, and you're a scratch golfer, and you as a year old go into that tournament and you crush those kids. Are you running around the green, throwing your club in the air and jumping into the water with your caddy because you're the, you probably go, well, that was fun, but what does it mean? It doesn't really mean anything to me because the level of competition, I've played such higher levels of competition. I've played such higher levels of hockey that this is, this was a weekend beer league for me. That's, that's, that's why I'm sort of surprised about the Datsuk comment. I better not answer the question the way I was going to then, the way you framed it. No, listen, uh, for Datsuk, it, 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 you got to understand professional athletes and you've, you know, you, uh, you do far more local stuff and interesting stories, but when you look at, um, national newspapers and you look at the Toronto Maple Leafs and you listen to the players and you listen to the Blue Jay players, they all speak media talk. You know, we're going to give a hundred percent. They say what's going to play well. Donaldson will say, I love it in Toronto. Tells his wife, you know, this is it. Can't wait to get out of town. But when he's in front of the media, maybe he goes, you know what? This is really going to play well back home. And you know what? That may Don't be re- discount that. That could well be that I am now setting myself up for. He's not going back to Detroit. He's going back to Moscow or wherever he comes from. Yeah. Even Siberia. The, the story was, the, the interview was with the Detroit Free Press. But yeah, it's going to be picked up and it's going to be, see, you. that may be exactly what you're talking maybe about. Maybe he's playing to the crowd now. Yep. He plays in the KHL, right? Yep. So maybe I'm just trying to really sell it so that when I go home, I get my uh, Lada sponsorship (laughs) or whatever, whatever they sponsor over there. I mean, I don't know. It's, uh, that could, that's a great point. And that could be, that could be bang on that. You're just playing to what you believe they want to hear. They all do it. Yeah. I just. 
Right, not again, very many of them tell you what you want. Like I don't know. How again, many. I, I if you if it just shot, it, it surprised me. I thought if I thought I might have expected him to say, you know what, I've won Stanley Cups, and this is right up there. This is every bit as good as a Stanley Cup. But to say this is the thing that eclipses any one of my Stanley Cup championships, that was anyway. That Did you hear any Canadian players after Germany beat us say, you know what, that was brutal. That was our, the worst effort we've had in this tournament, and it sucks. You know, they all thought that. Oh sure, but did you hear anybody say, you know, I'm really disappointed for Canada. What a what a what a game to lay an egg. Well, no, people never, don't talk like no, that. No, they don't talk like that. They say what you think. You know, we did our best. We, you know, we pushed hard. Too little, too late. Made some. You know, but made, do you think the Canadian players? We got to go to a break. Do you think the Canadian players, five years from now, ten years from now, when they look back on that game, that semifinal game against Germany? Are they going to, and they have also, for some of them who have lost Game 7 of a Stanley Cup Final or a Stanley Cup Semifinal, will they look back at missing getting to the Stanley Cup as the bigger thing, that we were that close and we just were one game away, or will they look at the Germany game and we were that close to playing in this Olympic? See, I think they'll all look at the Stanley Cup one and say, man, if we could have only had one good game that day. I think on a, on a player-by-player uh, uh, assessment, it will matter more to them about the role they played. Like if you were sitting in the press box or you were a fourth line guy versus being a first line guy in, in the uh, in the uh, game against Germany, I think it, it probably it would vary from player to player um, on the contribution and the, and the and the role you played. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show weeknights from six to eight only on 900 CHML. Uh, Don, today was the NHL's trade deadline, uh, an event that puts more people to work than pretty much any other industry short of the federal government. More people are on TV talking about nothing every year at trade deadline day. And today specifically, there was one big trade. That two, there were two good trades. Stastny going to Winnipeg and Ryan McDonough from the New York Rangers going to Tampa Bay. But it was... Not what you would call a eight-hour scintillating barn burner of a day. So here's my proposal. If the NHL is going to, the NHL has not, it was the TV networks that have turned trade deadline into a big event, but the NHL has not complained about eight hours of solid TV on NHL coverage for that day and the lead up to it and everything else. Hockey day in Canada might be a better time. I think the NHL should put a trade moratorium on for a week leading up to this. For the week leading up to trade deadline day, you cannot make a trade. And beginning at 10 a.m., all the trades that you've discussed over that week can all be announced now. Now, that means they may just move up and they may just decide to do all their trades before then, but that just makes a second trade deadline essentially then. You get two. Seems to me you got to do, if we're going to make this, if the NHL is going to try and build this thing and make it worth keeping up with, do something to make trades actually happen on that day. Well, TSN and, and Sportsnet have done it. Yeah, they you, have. As you know. And it end. used to be the score as well. They used to do it before, and but now ESPN, not ESPN, yeah, ESPN, I guess, picks up on it a little bit down in the States. Sports Illustrated picks up a little. It's, it's, uh, it's like Groundhog Day. And when I use that term, it's like Groundhog Day. It's not like it's the same day repeating itself over and over again. The The context in which I put it it's is... It's six more weeks of trade deadline? <laughs> yeah. They should, maybe they should do that. Determine what's going 
but everybody gets all wound up or those that enjoy groundhogs and and uh and, and events such as that but what other events are there such as that what other rodent centric events are there on our planet <laughs> 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 Valentine's Day is, Valentine's is one Day. because the men are the oh. rodents. Oh, okay. Um, Didn't know how you were getting out of that one. Suze was listening intently to hear how you were going to yeah. dig yourself out of that hole. But anyway, <laughs> all the hype the in Wyerton and 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 Pennsylvania and everything else, where the crown uh, town crier comes out and somebody wears a top hat and they get some poor little rodent that they've been feeding carrots all year and yank him out and. Hope he lives. I mean, they got a new guy up in uh, Wyerton Yep. because the last guy died, gets sick and tired of it. But my point is all the frenzy around what's going to happen and the groundhog walks out and if, if he sees his shadow, fine. It's not much excitement because if there's no sun, I think you can all go home. Ladies and gentlemen, there's nothing to see here. There's no sun. And to a certain extent, that's the NHL trade, trade deadline. Because more and more teams are trying to do something before today, like the Toronto Maple Leafs did, and and several several others, and it's just so much to do about nothing. But it's if you to had make a chicken week, salad, a chicken I know. But feathers. if you have a week to do it, and I don't mean feathers. No, no. But if you had a week to do it, where it was a trade moratorium, would you not? I mean, you've been in this business. Would it not inspire more GMs, more time to talk? And you may still end up with a flurry at the end, but at least now. You know, I can't make a trade in this window, so I can work stuff with other teams and play other teams off each other. I can know what's out there. I, I To me, it just becomes a... Yeah, but you get the big trades, you see. If you make a deal two or three games before the trade deadline, look at Ottawa did. They yanked Phaneuf out of the uh, mm-hmm. the game before he... Uh, partway through the game, so he didn't... They really want to get rid of him. Let's not take a chance he's going to get hurt and he won't be able to leave. Let's yank him out now and get him to Hollywood. Well, you may end up with a couple guys missing a couple games then while they hold them out because they could be trade bait, I suppose. I mean... Well, you think it's not going to leak out? I mean, there's all kinds of guys that are sniffing around and fairly accurate on predictions, I would I would think. Like all the... Uh, what do they call them? Stink... Stink... Uh, stained wrenches or... What ink, ink stained wrenches. Yeah. Well, when they used to be ink in the newsroom. Well, well... But they're, these guys are sniffing it out. They've all got their contacts sure. and everything else. I just, uh, as I say, it's, it's it. At one time, it was a, it was actually a lot of fun to watch. At one time, it was a lot of fun to watch. Well, it was also, it was also started at noon and went till three. That's true. Now it starts at six in the morning. Now it's and longer than the Super Bowl pregame yeah. thing. And it's and it's not of a lot of interest. But if you think about what those sports networks have to offer during that time frame on a Monday, fill it with talking heads. What about the best of trade deadlines? You can do that. Like the other option is likely a poker game or a dart tournament. I'd rather see the panels play in mm-hmm. poker. Put the panel around a poker table, and then when something happens, interrupt them and say, hey, guys, we got a trade. Oh, okay. And then go back to your poker. See, then or darts. Then at least something is happening in between. So there was a significant trade today. Josh Juris went to the Pittsburgh Penguins from the Carolina Hurricanes. And we didn't have enough to offer out because we'd like to get another jurist in the lineup. But good Someday. for Josh. Someday. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.